Many of you probably already know Clark Zonbreaker. I want to introduce him real quick in case you haven't met him. Clark Zonbreaker is on staff at Antioch Brighton. His uh, role is director of ministry, similar to uh, John Prickett's role here. And uh, Natalie and uh, Clark moved out uh, almost two and a half, two years ago, almost two years ago. And uh, I, you know, as we were taking communion this morning together as families, my mind went back to a setting where we were sitting in our backyard having a having a breakfast together as the Zonbreakers were trying to decide whether to move out here. And uh, it, was a, it was a sweet connection early on in, in the process. They came out a couple of times for world mandates. But uh, in the season over the last couple of years, I, felt, I feel like that the Zonbreakers have made Antioch more home to us because of who they are, both in, in, in your professional role and just who you are as a family, making home. There's your families that breathe celebration and life, and you and your role bring structure and uh, intentionality, authenticity that brings safety and security to, to our bodies. So this is a man who loves the word. Uh, this is a man who is a teacher uh, and an uh, equipper. And he's, uh, he's worthy of your ears and your heart this morning. Amen? Thank you, Brendan. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad. And I actually became the man of the 43 minutes. So I was a little... Um, hey, I'm, I have an hour. Yeah, there's no other service after this. Um, hey, I want to show you all a picture of my family that uh, Brendan uh, alluded to. So I'm, I'm the one in the middle. And then the one, that real beautiful thing to the right of me, that's my wife, Natalie. You, thank you. And then here are my kids, Sammy, the nine-year-old, top left, my, my little Anna Joy, who is my joy, five-year-old right there. Then uh, Joshua is two years old, and Stevie is five. And so um, it, it is awesome to be here. I want to show you all what I did this weekend. Um, it's a nice barn. It's real lovely. And then, oh! Anyone else at the men's retreat? Okay, a couple of the guys from the men's retreat. So Antioch, the three congregations had a, a men's retreat in New Hampshire at Toanippi, and it just so ha- this weekend it just so happened to be their uh, their volunteer work day, and so they used their fifty of us, and they used us to just take buildings that were there and make them not there anymore. Uh, we had a lot of other work projects, but it was a blast. It was a lot of fun. Um, and so that was that I was on the demolition team, and it was it was awesome. I, I shared this during the first service, and I want to share with you guys too. Um, so there's a number of places in the Old Testament and the New Testament where worship and prayer are compared uh, or likened to incense or perfume. Okay, own unique fragrance. It's its own unique fragrance that's made up of the different cultures, the different life experiences, the, uh, the personalities. And I just want to let you know that I love the way you guys smell. Like worshiping with y'all this morning, it's, it's beautiful. I love worshiping. It's unique. Um, you can, Exodus 30 talks about the process of making this, the incense for the temple. And it's all these different spices brought together. And then a perfumer beats them and crushes them and makes them one. And so if you've experienced any beating and crushing in the context of this community, that's, that's how, it, that's how that, that fragrance is released. And that's how unity is produced. And so 
It's, I believe that as, as time goes on, you guys are going to smell even better and better and better. But y'all, y'all smell great this morning. Um, it's great worshiping with y'all. Amen. So uh, Brendan mentioned that we moved from Texas. I think he mentioned Texas, but we moved almost two years ago. And has anyone moved in the last five years? Could just be from one house to the next house. Yeah, so you guys understand that that moving takes a lot of energy. There's there's a lot of really awesome things about moving. Maybe it's a, there's a new job. There's a new maybe you're getting married. Uh, maybe there's a there's a you're graduating. There's a new opportunity, a new door that the Lord's opening. And there's a lot of excitement that goes into moving. But also there's some challenges that go go into moving. And so for us, one of the big challenges or the hardest things about moving from Texas was just saying goodbye to our house. We, we loved our house. A house is a container for memories. And saying goodbye to one of those containers is an emotional thing. Um, we, we, you know, those little kids that you saw there, we, we uh, brought some of them home from the hospital to that house. And, and uh, kids learned how to ride bikes in front of our house. And so a lot of on the fact that the house was a, it was a beautiful house. It, it, it was a, a wonderful place to build, build our, our little family. Um, our assumption was that when we put it on the market, that we wouldn't have a problem at all finding someone else who would see it and, uh, you know, see the photos, read the listing description and say, wow, that looks like a great place to build our family. That's, we want our kids playing on that playscape in that backyard. We, 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 we want our kids running through that open uh, floor plan and our kids learning how to ride bikes on that big cul-de-sac in front of the house where there's no traffic. Unfortunately for us, if the house was on the market for months and we had no offers. We had people come to look at it, but there were no offers at all. And we moved up here and the house was still on the market and we're paying rent up here, which rent's a little more expensive up here than it is in Austin. I don't know if you realize that, but but so we're paying a mortgage in Texas, and we're pay, paying rent up here. We're like, Lord, please provide for us someone to buy this house. Could not find anyone to buy the house. Now, we realized after some time that, that what was happening, so our house is, the foundation is on a slope. Not because it was built that way but because the, the soil in Texas has a lot of clay in it, central Texas especially, and so the humidity and the constant um, change of temperature kind of it creates this accordion effect underneath your house. And so over time, houses can, um, or foundations can snap, and that's a big uh, expensive thing to fix, um, or it can just become kind of on a slope. Our house was on a slope. You couldn't tell it was on a slope by being in it. It wasn't like you were in a fun house or, you know, at a carnival or something, but but nonetheless, it, in the disclosure, it, it was communicated, it was on a slope. And here's the problem. People would look at the pictures, look at the listing description, and say, whoa, I would imagine they would. But I, I mean, they'd say, this looks like a great place to raise our kids. I mean, it, 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 it promises to be a, a wonderful place to have, you know, breakfast together, uh, family times, birthday parties. We're going to do this. This is great. And, oh, can we rely on this house to stay intact? Is the foundation going to snap, you know, months or years after we buy it? Um, there, there wasn't enough confidence. And see, here's the thing. When you, when something, you know, buying a house is one of the, the most, the biggest purchases you and I will ever make, more than likely, most of us. And 
a great cost requires a great level of confidence, right? You don't want to just blindly buy a house. It takes a lot of research. You know, that, that's why uh, the process can take a long time is because there has to be a great level. The person lending you the money has to have a lot of confidence in this house. They got to have a lot of confidence in you. And so great cost requires a great level of confidence. And buyers, despite the attractive features of the house, they could not muster the amount of confidence required to buy the house. So actually, we ended up renting the house and we are thankful that we did not sell it because we love, we have friends who live there and it's just a win-win situation all around, but that's a totally different story. But what I wanna share this morning is my assumption is that we're, okay, so we're in a church. So I, I have a couple of, few assumptions about us who are sitting here. One of those assumptions is, is that at some point in, 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 in your life, just like as in my life, I'm, you made the decision that the truth claims in this book, this Bible, that the truth claims in this book are reliable to build your life on, okay? That's my assumption this morning. Now, similar to the, the, the listing description, the photos of my house that presented the house as this wonderful place to raise your family, the, the authors of this book present the truth claims as reliable and as you can trust this to show you how to have a relationship with God, how to be forgiven of sin, how to experience true life. And so a lot of wonderful, attractive features, okay? But there's one thing that I love about the, the, this, this, uh, this book. There's a lot of things. One of the things is I love how it's not bashful. About, there is a cost to building your life you can pull them up on the screen. This is Jesus. He says, calling, and calling to the crowd to him with his disciples, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay? The cross is not a decorative, it's not an ornament, right? It's not this pretty, oh, that's a nice cross. You know, this was an instrument of death. And Jesus was saying, if you're gonna follow me, Grab your instrument of death and let's go. So he's inviting people, and as it were, you took on, there's a death sentence. You're gonna have to die to yourself. Jesus, this, this wasn't in the, the, the footnotes, right? This is not in the footnotes of the Bible. This is all caps, bold statements like this. Okay, here's another one. Before I read this, I want to take a poll. Is there anyone in this room who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? I do. Well, here you go. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This isn't a secret. This, Paul's, this made it into the Bible. You know, there's lots of statements like this. And here's the deal. All of the attractive features in this book come at a great cost. And as I mentioned earlier, Great cost requires great confidence. So my question for us this morning is, do we have the confidence to accept the great cost of building our lives on this book? Do we have sufficient confidence that this actually is reliable? That it's, this foundation isn't gonna, we're not gonna build our life on it and then it's gonna snap underneath our feet and everything that we've built our life on is gonna, turn out to be a, you know, it was a fraud or it wasn't, it, it wasn't, it wasn't stable. So do we have 
sufficient confidence. I think you know what I believe. But here's, here's, here's why this is important for us to ask this. One of the reasons why it's important. I, I believe we live in a, in a day where there is, there is a consensus, like a, a, a summary, a set I had too at one point in my life. So it's not an us and them thing. I'm sure many of you maybe uh, agreed with this statement, but I'm going to read. This is my summary of what I believe secular consensus believes about this collection of writings of Bible. The Bible is an antiquated collection of writings that have been altered over time, or at worst, is a collection of myths created to deceive and control the masses that science and archaeology have repeatedly disproven. And to believe anything different is the same as living in the 21st century and believing that the sun revolves around a flat earth. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever explained your faith to someone or you've been in a, a, a maybe a, you know, in the, the somewhere at work in an environment and you just kind of feel like, you know, if you bring up that you go to church or you believe the Bible, it's almost like saying like, yeah, I believe the earth. I'm a flat earther. <laughs> have you ever felt that? I've, I mean, I have felt that. So, so it's important to know, do we have confidence? Do we have confidence in the reliability of Scripture? Now, there's the, the, this message is going to be, um, if you imagine, so we're in a house. This is a house, okay? And we come to this house. We come to fellowship. We come to party. We come to worship. We come to enjoy each other. And and we come to hear the, you know, the word. And everything that we do in this house on Sunday mornings is based on the assumption that the ground's not going to open up or we're all going to go into the, like, you know, die or, or whatever. There's, there's an assumption that, the, that the, the foundation is reliable. And so every time Sean gets up to give a message, he doesn't have to, you know, share 20 minutes of defending the reliability of the Bible to establish that foundation for him then to give a teaching, right? However, what we're going to do this morning is we are going to take, I'm going to take you guys outside the house. We're going to take, walk around the corner and we're going to look at the foundation and we're going to say, is this a reliable foundation? And then after we consider that, we're going to walk, go back into the house. Okay. So that's a little different than what we normally do on Sunday mornings. I'm just giving you a heads up. So join me as we exit the house to go look at the foundation and consider, do we have confidence? Go for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Meet, go meet us outside. Yeah. <laughs> Sean's like, I've heard this already. I'm going to go take a nap. Okay, so, but, but, but as we talk about confidence, as, we, as we're walking together outside, I want to share, you, uh, share something with you that I believe is really important for us to understand about confidence. Um, and here it is. Proof is not a prereq for confidence. Okay. Proof, proof which is absolute 100% certainty about something, is not a requirement for confidence. Okay. What's required for confidence is evidence. In the court of law, it's evidence. <clears throat> that is used to bring a charge against someone, right? It's not proof. History, the, the field of history, the field of science, all of these things deal with evidence, not proof. You cannot prove history. Does that make sense? Even science, 
I, mean, I studied biology in college, and even science is, does not deal mostly with proof. It deals mostly with evidence. But evidence can give us confidence. And so it's important to understand this because if, if I believe that, that proof of God's existence, that proof that this is his word is required for me to have confidence, then I am um, taking on an unrealistic burden. If, if the world requires that of me, if the world requires that of you, if someone requires proof of you, to prove God and to prove this book is true straight at this point. They are putting an unrealistic burden on you. And here's an example to illustrate this point. I'm going to go home from church today, and I am going to learn that my bike has been stolen. And I'm going to say, you know what? I know exactly who stole my bike. Nate Masterson stole my bike. Typical Nate move. Steal, steal a friend's bike. Not really. But for the sake of this illustration, so I'm going to call up Nate tomorrow. I'm going to say, Nate, I want my bike back. You, you have my bike. You know you have my bike. And Nate's going to say, who is this? I'm going to say, it's Clark. Uh, I don't have your bike. Clark, yeah, you did. You stole it during church. I was at church, and I came home, my bike was gone. And Nate's going to say, uh, I, was, I was at church too. There's no way I could have stolen your bike. I was in the same room with you. And I say, you weren't at church. Prove it. He says, well, uh, oh, wait, hang on. Here's, here's, a, here's the bulletin that somebody handed me at the door. And I look at it, and I'm like, you know what? Pretty dumb by yesterday after, or Sunday afternoon, and you took a bulletin out of the trash, the big pretty dumpster out, thing out there. You, you took, the, you took the, the bulletin out of that. Nate's like, no. And I'm like, prove it. You stole my bike. And they'll say, well, let's see. Oh, well, I rode to church with Becca and the kids, and like I always do. And... And I say, no. And I ask Becca, and I say, hey, did, did Nate happen to go to church with you? She's like, of course he did. We always go to church together. And I say, no, you're just vouching for him because you know he stole my bike. I see what's going on. Prove it that you didn't steal my bike. And then he says, well, I heard your message. This is what you spoke on. And I said, no, you, you downloaded the MP3 off the website, and you listened to it. Can I please have my bike back? Do you see how ridiculous? Now, Nate can't prove to me that he didn't steal my bike. But the evidence is loud. <laughs> like, he did not steal the bike. So I would be, I, I, if I was a lack of integrity on my part, because I live no other area of my life requiring that degree of proof. 99, 100% of our lives, we, the decisions we make, it's based on the evidence of our experience, of what thing, you know, people do, you know, when you got married, you had n- no proof that the person you're marrying wasn't an axe murderer. But the evidence suggested otherwise. That, hey, this is actually, she's a pretty nice person, and she couldn't hurt a fly. But prove it. She could actually be an axe murderer. And sometimes those stories actually do happen. But we live our lives based on evidence. Okay. Now, let's go back outside. We're walking outside. We're going to look at the foundation I just want to say from the get-go, there are mountains of evidence that support the reliability of the Bible. Lots of things I don't know, lots of things I don't even understand. But this morning, what I want to do is just take a couple of boulders from that mountain and share them with you. Some, some evidence that I think is, is pretty remarkable. And so instead of just listing them off, what I want to do is I'm going to share a passage of Scripture that beautifully illustrates some of these different kinds of evidence. 
Um, and I just, I think that's more interesting than me just listing it off. And it comes from um, Acts chapter 2. It's Peter's first sermon that he gave. And it's on the birthday of the church, Pentecost. And he, the, the context is uh, the, the disciples, about 120 of them are hiding. They're, they're praying. They're waiting. And I'm getting a phone call. Um, they're, they're waiting for the promise of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes, and wow, something happens that's apparently loud and demonstrative because it's a big enough commotion where it attracts at least 3,000 people. Like, whoa, what is going on over here? They come over there, and as they look at it and they try to decide what's going on, the only thing they can come up with, the only thing they've ever seen that looks anything like what's going on is that, oh, these people are all intoxicated. They're drunk. So Peter gets up to dress. And I have a recording. We're going to, instead of me reading it to you, we're going to listen to it. Peter preaches to, to the crowd. Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says... I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. And your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. Even on my servants, men and women alike. And they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above. And signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark. And the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, raised him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life. For death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life, and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about he died and was buried. Be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. He was saying that David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven. Yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, 
sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Awesome. Isn't that cool? That's a, there's a, there's an app called Streetlights that has the whole New Testament like narrated. And it's, it's, I, I, someone told me about it a few months, a couple weeks ago, and I really like it. Um, okay. So when we look at Peter's sermon, there's something I want to point out that, that I find really interesting is that, that Peter gives this message and what he's doing is he, he, he's giving a defense to the, the thousands of people who are like, what is going on? They're not believers. You guys are crazy. So he's giving, kind of giving a defense of what's going on as well as a defense of the gospel. And when he does so, he's, he's not really trying to prove anything. What he's doing is he's laying out for his, his listeners an array of evidences that supports what's going on then. Look at a few of these types of evidence. So the the first one that he appeals to is Old Testament prophecy. Three times in in this message, this sermon, Peter appeals to Old Testament prophecies as evidence to support what was going on that day. So he uses the Joel um, prophecy to explain the commotion that was happening. He's saying this was prophesied in the Old Testament, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And then he also uses two passages from Psalms to, to, as evidence to support the, the resurrection of Jesus as well as the ascension of Jesus. Now, this is a type of evidence that we have today in the reliability of the gospel account, and that is the evidence of expected testimony. Okay, so expected prophecy, the evidence of expected testimony. Now, there are smart people who've determined that there are over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament that point towards Jesus, point towards Jesus's life, okay? So let me just tell you a few of them. There are prophecies that predict Jesus's ancestry, the the place he would be born, where he would grow up, the social class he'd grow up in, his teaching style, his miraculous abilities, the fact that he'd be rejected by the masses, the fact that he'd be betrayed by a really close friend, the very amount of money this close friend would betray him for, what his friend would actually would say doing with the money that he got from betraying him, what Jesus would say, or better yet, not say to his accusers, the fact that Jesus would be tortured, the specific way he'd be sentenced to die, the very drink his captors would offer him while he's dying, what his captors would do with his clothes while he was dying. Despite, and despite the horrific ordeal, somehow not even a single bone in his body would be broken, and so on and so on. So there's a, that's, I mean, to me, that's pretty significant. That's significant evidence that these, these writings from hundreds of years prior point to that these, these intimate Peter appeals to is we see in verse 22, he appeals to his audience's knowledge, okay? In verse 22, he says, this happened in, he's talking about Jesus dying, um, you know, living, doing miracles, uh, and then dying, being crucified. And he says, hey, this happened in your midst, as you yourselves know. And so he's appealing to the fact that 
that the, the people, the, the non-believers who were before him, they knew exactly that what he was saying. Like, yeah, okay, there was this guy, Jesus. Like, they couldn't deny that. So he was appealing to his audience's knowledge and saying, hey, deny it if you, if you can. But this, this happened and you know it. Now, this corresponds to a type of evidence that we have today, which is, we'll call the evidence of early testimony. Okay? The benefit of early testimony is that there is time for it to be corrected and refuted by others. If something is not true, if I say, um, hey, after church on Sunday, you know, let's say I go home and then next week, I, I, or let's say I'm here again next Sunday, and I say, last Sunday after church, I, I, walked, I walked on Moody Street and there was a parade of clowns for about two hours going down. Someone to refute that? You just have to go ask a shop owner. Hey, I noticed you have a shop on Moody Street. Did you see a parade of clowns? Like, no. I, I, I see everything that happens on Moody Street. I didn't see that. It would be so easy for someone to refute my claim because, so legends require time and a distance of, the, the, the oral stories of the gospel and the teachings began circulating immediately after the events took place. And all the gospel accounts that we have written here were written within the lifespan of many who were alive when it happened. And so it was very easy to refute, very easy to correct if it was not true. So legends start like this, once upon a time in a land far, far away, or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's like, who can refute that, right? Oh, it was in a galaxy far, far away. You weren't there. You couldn't see it. It was long ago. It was before, you know, you can't refute that, right? That's how legends are born. If you want to start a legend, it has to be a great amount of distance in time and space. So the, the earliest mention of the gospel, the, the death, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is actually not in the gospels, the four gospels. It's in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, Christian scholars, non-Christian scholars, they all believe that the book of first, the letter of 1 Corinthians was written somewhere around 50 AD, which puts it within 20 years of the events, which is very close. Lots of people are still alive. It can be refuted. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, lay, uh, yeah, Paul lays out the gospel. He says, hey, I delivered to you the gospel I received, and here it is. He, Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised to life. And then he appeared to, to Cephas, who's Peter. Then he appeared to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And he says, some have fallen asleep, but most of these guys and girls are still alive. And that's significant. We're going to come back to that. So this is not how you start a religion. You don't say that this guy raised to life and, and appeared to 500 people who are still walking around that you can go ask. That's not how you start a religion. If you want to start a religion, what you say is, I was on a mountain by myself and I saw an angel who told me this and told me to write this down or he gave me these tablets that only I can read. You can't read, but you're just going to take my word for it, right? That's how you start a religion. You don't start a religion by saying he appeared to 500 people who are walking around among you. Just ask them. And that leads us to the next and the, the final um, class or type of evidence that Peter appeals to 
And what, what he says in verse 32, he appeals to what he, and not just him, but what him and the disciples and a lot of people saw. So this, this corresponds to the, uh, you know, the eyewitness testimony is like some of the most solid evidence you could ever come up with, okay? If someone's in court and they said, well, how do you know this person committed this crime? Well, my cousin's neighbor ran into um, my, my coworker and my coworker then told, you know what I mean? Like the, with every degree of separation from the event, there's less credibility, okay? But eyewitness testimony is solid. Now, does that prove it? No, they could all be lying, right? There have been a group of people who've decided together we're all going to tell the same lie. That's happened before. But the Gospels, all of the, go- the four Gospels, the sources of the Gospels were eyewitnesses of the actual events. And the Gospels even read like eyewitness accounts. You read the Gospels and you find little details like, how would, that, how would anyone know that unless they were actually there? Like, they don't even make sense. Like when, you know, Jesus is captured and one of the disciples runs away naked. Why would you add that? They don't come back to that and teach something. You know, it's in there. Is that in there? That's in there. One of the disciples runs away naked. Why would that be there? It doesn't, there's no reason. So there's these, these little details in the, old, in the Gospels that read the way you would expect. They have details that you would expect if it was an actual eyewitness account. And here's the most significant, in my mind, the most significant thing that supports the, the uh, Peter and the disciples, all their, their, their eyewitness accounts, the fact that they died believing. All of them except John the Apostle were murdered, not just because of what they believed in, but because of what they believed they saw. There's a big difference between the two things. People die probably every day for what they believe in. Terrorists, they die for what they believe in. Better be to the betterment of the world. You know, I'm, I'm going to get to go to heaven if I do this, or this is actually going to better be to the betterment of the world. The disciples did not die for what they believed in. They died for what they believed they saw. They died because they believed they saw Jesus alive after he had died and he had ascended to heaven. If they had made this up, one of them certainly would have cracked, Right? It's like, okay, I'm tapping out. Okay, it was, we thought it would be great, but we made it up. Nobody did that. And they weren't, they weren't killed humanely. Okay, they didn't die in their sleep. It was excruciating deaths. And this gives support to the fact that they, this community had seen something that they're willing to die for. So those are three types of evidence, expected testimony, early testimony, eyewitness testimony that Peter appeals to that we still have today. And there's one more that we have today that I want to share because I love it, but it's not in the Peter's message, but it's the evidence of embarrassing testimony. You may have heard this before, but the embarrassment criterion is a type of critical analysis that states, if an account is likely embarrassing to its author, it's likely to be true. If, if an account is embarrassing to its author, like it contains information that, that makes the author look in a bad light, it's likely true. Because why, why else would someone do that? 
Now, the Gospels are full of embarrassing material that, that, that put the disciples who were the leaders of the early church in a bad light, okay? And during that time, and you can, read, you can see it in Paul's ability of the apostles. There are false apostles going around. Records were full of ammunition for these false, prophet, uh, false apostles to undermine the credibility of all of these leaders. Why would they prov- give, hand that over to, their, to, to, to people to use as ammunition? Think of it this way. We have some elections in a couple years. Um, imagine if, if one of the, the uh, presidential candidates said, hey, I'm running for office, and I just I want to give you all this file. This has every embarrassing thing, every illegal thing, anything that anyone could ever dig up on me is in this file right here. And I just want you all to have it. From the, do, do candidates do that? No. What would, the, what would the election process look like? I mean, there would be, no, there'd be, nothing, there'd be no political ads because there's nothing to shame people about if it's all out in the open, but that's what we have in the Gospels. We have Peter being called Satan by Jesus. We have disciples abandoning Jesus at the hour of of his greatest need. We have Peter denying Jesus three times. We have the repeated rebuke and correction of the disciples by Jesus. I mean, the disciples look like the three stooges during that three-year process. You know, they're arguing about who's great, it's like, see, you're always power hungry. That, so you, you shouldn't be an apostle because you're power hungry. So here's another thing. The women are portrayed as the brave ones in the gospel stories. The women were, the, were portrayed as the first ones to see Jesus after the resurrection. To us, that's not hard to believe. It's, that's not a big deal. It's like, yeah, okay. But it was a man's. So having women in your story of being the ones who first saw Jesus People could pick that up and say, oh, that's not a good, credible, credible witness. The disciples even doubted the resurrection. Even when they saw Jesus, they're like, I, I'm not going to believe it unless I can tell. Embarrassing stuff for the disciples. Now, here's the deal. Peter had a lot of reasons when he's given a sermon to have confidence in what he believed. He had evidences, but I don't believe that's what was at the heart of his confidence. I believe what was at the very heart of Peter's confidence was his personal experience of Jesus. Peter had personal experience of Jesus long before he had all these evidences, long before he had these, these uh, you know, this tight apologetic package that he could offer someone to de- explain why he believes what he believed. He experienced Jesus. He had experienced uh, before even meeting the resurrected Jesus, he had experienced the power of the life of the words of Jesus. And he had experienced the transformation of being in relationship with Jesus, of sitting at his feet. And that was what was at the heart of his confidence. That's why he died. That's why the disciples died for Jesus. And we can see this in John chapter six. In John chapter six, way before the resurrection, Jesus was at the height of his popularity. And Jesus decides all of a sudden that it's time to trim the fat. And, and Jesus decides to start to, to say something that he knew would really offend his Jewish list, uh, audience. And it was about drinking his blood and eating his flesh. When Jesus does this, popular con- the consensus, the popular consensus started headed in the other direction. Like, 
this guy's crazy. See, he's, he's got a demon. You know, it's like, Jesus, can't you just say nice stories and feed us lunch and heal people? Why do you need to say this stuff? You know, why? But we're out of here. The disciples even, his close companions were even trying, like, huh, wow, should we leave too? And Jesus notices this and says, hey, you guys want to go? I'm not, I'm not holding you hostage. Y'all want to y'all leave too? And Peter, stuck between a rock and a hard place, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal Jesus who speaks words as these words are alive. There's no one who's, who, can, who, who, who speaks the things with the authority, with the life that Jesus has. And Jesus, Peter's like, you're stuck with us. You, you know, we're, we're going against, you know, popular consensus is going that way. Now we're traveling against the current. You know, this is, uh, and they couldn't even make sense of why, what Jesus even meant when he was saying, saying things. They didn't have answers to the questions. They couldn't explain all the questions or ex- give answers to all the legitimate questions that maybe Jesus' uh, opposition would present. Like, well, he's demonic. He's saying drink blood. How do you reason? What do you say for that? Drinking blood is totally against the Jewish law. They had no answers for that. All they knew was that they, that, that they had tasted the, the, the life that was in Jesus' words. They knew that he was God. This is long before Peter had the answers, some of the evidences that we looked at from Acts 2. And if I'm honest with you, I would say when I first started following Jesus, it wasn't because I got a hold of the answers and the evidence. And it, oh, okay, it makes sense. And so I, I think I'll, I'll put my, my faith in this. Um, though some people do come to the Lord that way. That's, I'm not negating that. But for me, long before I understood any of, had any of the answers to the good questions, it was the fact that I experienced Jesus. I met Jesus. I experienced his word. That after 18 years of a life void of God, encountering his truth and, and finding true life and true joy and true forgiveness and true, a sense of purpose and experiencing his word cutting deep inside of me and exposing these incredibly deep levels of brokenness and then showing me the pathway out into life. When I experienced that, I'm like, I'm done. I'm going, this is what I'm doing. I don't know all that. These are great questions. I don't know how to answer these questions that you might ask about, well, what about this? What about that? All I know is what I've experienced. But the good news is the evidence supports my experience. The evidence supports your experience. Okay? And it's important, says, would say otherwise. The popular consensus. So, come on, Sean. I'm glad you stayed with us. So we're heading back into the building now. The foundation is intact. It looks good. We've got nothing to worry about. Party on. All right. So Sean's going to lead us into response time. Amen. Stand up with me. Just, let's just position ourselves before the Lord and, and uh, make some confessions here. We got to remember that, as as Clark was pointing out, he was pointing out that, and, he, and uh, I believe he said this at the beginning, but the foundations of the Old Testament in the Bible 
are um, solidified and affirmed by Jesus. Jesus affirmed everything about the Old Testament as being of God. In his own life, he fulfilled that which was spoken about in the Old Testament and affirmed his own life and the veracity of his position as being the Son of God and the Savior of all mankind. And we put our trust in Jesus because of who he is, because he is the Word. It says in John 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, And without this Word, there is no life. And so Jesus is that life. He is the living word, any two-edged sword. They uh, divide among our joint and marrow, our soul and spirit. They judge our thoughts and attitudes. They bring everything to light before him who judges us justly. The word of God is alive and active in us. So our confession, God, and each one of you make your confession in the way that you can say it, but I will say my confession, Lord Jesus, is I believe in you, the Word of God, and I believe in this written Word that speaks from heaven to us, that tells accurately the story of your life, that has evidence based on human testimony and witness, as Clark has been sharing with us today, that there is good reason for me to believe with confidence, and I have confidence, that your foundation, the Word of God, I can build my life upon. I can build my belief set upon. I can believe, build my, my um, plans and my future and uh, everything about my life. I can put on and lay on the foundation of the Word of God. I can believe, Lord, that the truth that you revealed inspires me, directs me, leads me into to fruitful adventure, fr- fruitful um, uh, paths of righteousness with you. I believe in the foundation. I am confident that you've spoken and left your word with us. So you say it however you want to in your own heart. If you can confess it out loud, but make a confession to the Lord this morning. The foundation is good. Foundation is good. It's life. It's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. Your word is true, and I believe it. So we thank you, God. We thank you for this foundation. We thank you for being reminded today that we have a good foundation. And we receive that in Jesus' name. Amen.